0: out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in the I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode, and... Um, interestingly enough, on the trips that I lead to Jewish history sites, it's not limited to Eastern Europe. Anywhere where there's Jewish history and that people are curious to go to, we end up going to eventually um, places all over Europe, uh, mainly, obviously, principally, Eastern Europe. And each place has its unique story, each community, and then the farther you get, the more Um, diverse and uh, different exposures to different cultures and backgrounds of Jewish communities around. You know, now Morocco is becoming a popular trip, which is not in Europe altogether. And, of course, you could go on and on and on. And um, I'm told that there are Jewish uh, history tours in very far-flung places, and I'm looking forward to having groups... uh, for my own exposure as well, to be able to go to each place where in our long diaspora um, Jewish communities have uh, developed and either flourished or didn't, but they were there. So it's part of our story. So it ends up being mainly to several countries around Europe. And uh, the more unique the place is, the more further out the place is, the less likely that... um, That tour ends up there. So one of the places where not only have I not been there yet with the group, but I don't see it happening in the foreseeable future, is a place called Birobidzhan. I hope I pronounced that right. And it's in the far end of Russia. It's in the middle of nowhere, literally, and not just in a New Yorker sense that, you know, anywhere across the Verrazano Bridge is, is in the middle of nowhere. But really, this place is really in the middle of nowhere. It's in the almost in the far east. It's at the on the Chinese border with Russia on the other side of the world, um, and that and that place has the distinction of being called the Jewish Autonomous Region. And officially, until today, it's still in a Jewish Autonomous Region, even though there's almost no Jews who live there, and. Other than the state of Israel, it's really the only territory in the entire world that's an autonomous Jewish region. So it has a certain distinction to it, uh, meaning it's legally recognized by the government as a Jewish autonomous region. So in case anyone wants to move there. So what is this place and how did it come about? And the final and maybe the most important question is who cares? Why Why is it even an important uh, story on On the agenda. So, the way it came about, excuse me, it was founded in 1928. The Soviet government decides to found this Jewish autonomous uh, region called Birobijan at the far end of Russia. The Soviet government has several reasons for it. First of all, everyone's always looking to solve the Jewish problem, including the uh, Moscow Jewish uh, intellectual elite, um, you know Jewish poverty and Jewish productivity, and to help to help out the Jewish uh, um, people. Obviously, the Soviet government isn't exactly looking to help out the Jewish people, but is looking to make them more productive. Also, the Soviet government recognizes ethnic minorities that have their own republics. There's a whole slew of republics across the Soviet Union at the time. Many of them being developed at the time, language and the local cultures, as as long as they're all socialist and Soviet and loyal to Stalin and the Soviet Union, so there is a certain element of encouragement of uh specific cultures and um not religions, but cultures and ethnicity and language. Um so there's this there that's one that's one uh Factor. There's a, the, the pr- two principal factors. Maybe there's several several things come into play at the same time, but um, one the two principal factors are they want to reinforce the area um, which had become problematic on the Chinese border. Japan's a threat um, to the east. Uh, China's a threat to the south. The Chinese border was was problematic as a security when they definitely wanted to settle settlers there as so they were looking for someone to settle there. That's that was the strategic move on their part. That's why they chose there. That some place that was so far out. They had original original plans was to settle them in some place in the Crimea, southern Ukraine and others, and they eventually settled on Birobidzhan because of its strategic location. Um and then another main reason was uh, very simply, to combat Zionism, uh, Stalin and the Soviet government saw Zionism as a threat. It was Jewish nationalism, and in the same way they had an issue with the Jewish religion or any religion, they had a problem with Jewish nationalism in the sense that it would be to create a Jewish national state that had ties to the West. Right the Jewish nationalism at that at that time was married to British imperialism. This is ten years after the Balfour Declaration, and um, they see Zionism as a threat to Marxism, even though the many of the Jewish settlers there had Marxists in in Israel at the time had Marxist sympathies. But that's a story in itself. Um, so to to say that the Stalin and the Soviet government essentially are saying we recognize Jewish nationalism. We recognize the need for Jews to have a territory, but it doesn't have to be in Israel. It has nothing to do with the Jewish past, the Jewish religion. It has nothing to do with British imperialism. It doesn't have nothing to do with the Hebrew language, which is a problem, according to the Soviets. The official language in Birobidjan is Yiddish and Yiddish culture, Yiddish secular, socialist, communist culture, is respected and recognized. A Yiddish newspaper can be developed, and that's the other main reason that it's developed, is to combat... Now, here, Here's a territory. Here the Jews have their own territory. It's autonomous. It's Jewish. It has Jewish culture, and Jews can settle there. And the propaganda machine goes into play, and the Jews of the Soviet Union are encouraged to move east, they even do propaganda outside of the Soviet Union, try to encourage Jews from other places to move there. And there, in fact, is a couple of thousand Jews from around the world who move there, even Jews from the United States, from New York, from other places who actually pick up and move there. Not a lot, but a, a few hundred, maybe a thousand, which is fascinating that they would do that, literally to move to the end of the world, a place where. There was no settlement. The weather was harsh. The climate was harsh. The land was harsh. They were supposed to develop agriculture and industry in a very, very harsh atmosphere, beginning everything from scratch. When the first settlers came there, they literally had to build homes. It was like um, the United States in the nineteenth, early 19th century when they moved out to the West and uh, developed it there. Just, just there the land was richer and there was more opportunity. But literally building up from scratch and um and the, that was that was Beirobijan. Now, with all the propaganda and all the encouragement, not a lot of Jews settled there. It never really took off. There was a lot of high hopes, it was a lot of propaganda, a lot of excitement, but it never really took off. It was really harsh. It was really difficult to live there. It was really difficult to start from scratch and be so far from society and build things up. It was not easy being a settler there. And not everyone believed in it, that this was the way that the uh, Jewish problem would be solved. And it peaked um, about 1937 at 20,000 Jews, making them uh, only about 16% of the local population. That was the highest it got in the pre-war. It had another surge in the post-war. Jewish refugees running away um, from where the war was, from Siberia, and the the highest Jewish population ever in Birobidjan was in the post-war, the late 1940s. It reached almost 50,000 Jews. That's where it peaked, and it basically dropped off and collapsed since then. The main reason being because Stalin, who originally started this place, he purged the Jewish leadership in his last years, which is a whole really a, a whole tragic story uh, in itself with the, Stalin's purge of, of the Jewish leadership in his last years and months, really, even days in power. And he um, wipes out the Moscow Jewish elite for the most part and the Birobidzhan uh, Jewish intellectual elite and other Jews, doctors, poets, uh, all types of stories that went on then. And that was the collapse of the Birobidzhan idea Um, and uh, the Jewish population there dwindled, and after the Soviet Union collapsed, so many of them moved to Israel, and today there's less than 2,000 Jews in Birobidjan. Of course, there's a Chabad there, and there's a nice rabbi, and he's doing Kirov, and there is still limited Yiddish culture, and a Yiddish theater, and a Yiddish newspaper, and stuff like that, so there is some sort of attempt to keep the fact that it's a Jewish autonomous region alive, but not much more than that um so it was it was a nice idea had high hopes and mainly because of stalin's purge in the end it totally collapsed but even without that it didn't really have any sustainability it was a a real a real flop interesting point about it though which i want to point out is is their encounter with the the refugees on the trans-siberian railroad the the um Jews escaping from Poland and Lithuania in 1940-41 who had gotten visas to the Far East, to Japan, that would ultimately lead them to the United States, to a nice large contingent to Shanghai, including the Mir Yeshiva and others. So several thousand Jews in, in 1940, late 1940, early 1941, are going through the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which had been completed in 1916, a massive project of Tsarist Russia that took many years to build and lots of slave labor, and but eventually was the longest railroad in the world, um, the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And one of the last stops before it got to the end of Russia, to Vladivostok, was Birobidzhan. And here, these... Polish Jewish refugees who had come from a very vibrant Jewish life. Even secular Jews uh, on the trains were very, very much Jewish and very much part of Jewish life, and especially traditional-looking Jews and religious Jews. And here they encounter these Soviet Jews in the far end of the world. And this was an amazing encounter. The train stopped there was for a very short time, like most train st- stops on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. But there was this very powerful encounter that the Mir Yeshiva and the other Jewish refugees had with the Birobidzhan Jews. In fact, there are stories of them begging them to leave them some Jewish relic, a Jewish calendar, a talis, a siddur. Uh, leave it with them. They want to have this connection to Jews. And, uh, you know, there's stories of emotional encounters, of teary encounters, of this far-flung Jewish community finally meeting Jews from the center of Jewish life, from Poland, and just for a few minutes that they can interact with them to beg them for something Jewish. And many of the Mir Yeshiva and other Jewish refugees mentioned how on the Trans-Siberian Railroad stops the at almost every train station, poor Soviet workers would beg them for food. And here, when they stopped in Birobidzhan, the Jewish, their Jewish brothers begged them not for food, but for for uh, Jewish articles, artifacts, and something that could remind them of who they were and uh, and where they uh, and where they belong, what part, what people they are. So that's a very, very interesting encounter there. But uh, really, if we take a look at the whole Bijan story until today, really, which you know, like I said, it still exists, and there's still this element of Yiddish culture there, and a tiny, tiny amount of Jews there, and of course. Um, an attempt to, at Kirov, of Jewish life, like every far-flung Jewish community, that Chabad wonderfully does. But other than that, it doesn't seem like it was a very successful um, enterprise. And what what do we what do we have from this uh, this story that really has, you know, you know this uh, the this Soviet attempt at Yiddish culture, you know, or Jew- Jewish autonomy. Um, you know, the main street in Birobidjan is. Is called Shalom Aleichem gas, named after the great Yiddish writer. There's a statue of Shalom Aleichem, and the you know Yiddish humor and Yiddish theater always have played a role there in a Soviet way, in a, as long as it conformed to the Soviet way. So you had you had this whole thing, and what what do we, what is what is it uh, what importance does it have? Does it have any? Maybe it doesn't have any importance. So there is one point, and perhaps this is the main point that I want to emphasize about the Birobijan story. Is, is the reaction of uh, Jews in other parts of the world. And of course, like usual, I'll focus on Poland. That's where the main Jewish world was at the time of its founding, in 1928. And the, the question that, that, that occupied the Jews from the 1800s, from the 19th century, up until the war, was the Jewish question. In the modern world, how do we solve the Jewish question? Solve the Jewish problem? How do we better the situation for the Jews? And in the in the in modern times, that's the story of the Jewish people of the last two three hundred years. There's all the religious answers, Hasidus, the Yeshiva world, and so on. There's all the nationalism answers, such as Zionism and other solutions. There's the biggest answer of all, which was. Emigration to find new horizons, and there was, of course all types of other answers assimilation and there was the the uh, socialisms and all the variants of that, and many, many uh, creative solutions to the Jewish question in the modern world and one one issue that was raised by many leading Jewish intellectuals, politicians, writers uh, leaders at the time was the lack of a jewish territory the fact that they had no central point of territory which was the main point that zionism was trying to make and while most zionism zionist parties and ideologues and ideologies followed a romantic form of zionism in other words it's part of jewish tradition it's part of the jewish religion which which many of them no longer believed in but they knew it had existed, and it was firmly implanted in them, um, that it was part of the bedrock of the Jewish tradition throughout all the years. And, um, and, the, and it's a place where there's Jewish history, the B'Shemikdash, the Commonwealth, the government that had once existed there. And this is a place that they should return to, and it's a return to Zion, and it's creating, recreating the Jewish uh, of, of community in, in in Zion. There were other... While that romantic form of Zionism is the mainstream, the overwhelming majority of Zionist movements, but there exists another idea that's much more pragmatic and practical, and it's kind of like Zionism by default. Or not really Zionism by default, but making uh, a state in Palestine, in Israel... By default, because there's nowhere else, um, and that was a position held mainly by more, um, more, by Jews who, who were supporters of Yiddish culture, who lived in the here and now. They lived in trying to solve the problems of Jews in Poland, not through immigration, but rather solving the problems, the day-to-day problems of the working masses. They were very socialist, borderline Marxist, communist parties. The most prominent of these political parties in Poland in the interwar period was the Poale Zion, which had split in 1920 to the right and the left. And the majority and the stronger party was the Left Poale Zion, which was called the LPZ, Left Poale Zion. And this is the party, actually, of the famous Jewish historian of the Warsaw Ghetto. Immanuel Ringelblum. He was very active in the LPZ in the interwar period. And the idea that they had, it was founded by Ber Barakov, a famous Jewish intellectual who died very young, who said that the main problem of the Jews is economic. We have to fix the Jewish economic problems. The Jewish workers can't unite as tailors. The Russians unite as coal miners because it's easier for coal miners to form a union but it's hard for tailors working in their homes to form a union. That was a famous saying of Ber Baruchah. And therefore, the main problem of the Jews is economic. He was very socialist, very Marxist, and his solution was very creative. He said if there was a central territory where Jews could go to and be safe and build a strong economic base, and he was a big supporter of Yiddish culture, secular Yiddish culture, in other words, the Jews would have their own language, Yiddish. They would build their own culture and develop it. They would have their own place. And it would center around that. Not only would it solve the problem of the Jews for the people who lived in this location, but it would also solve the problem of the Jews in the diaspora, because they would identify with this place from far. And there would be a strong economic base and a strong cultural base, even for the Jewish diaspora. That's what he envisioned. And he said there is no other place that would solve the problem as a territory. The Jews need that territory. So Zion, Palestine, can serve as that territory. And it's a practical solution. It's not a romantic Zionism. And he he always, and the the LPZ took that position, they always called it Palestine, not Eretz Yisrael. And uh, it was a very different form of Zionism. It's hard to even call it Zionism in that context. And having said all that, so what ended up happening was that in 1928, the Soviet Union, who was the great savior for many of these leftist socialist political groups in, even in, in Poland, in independent Poland, where communism was illegal at that time. But, um, but here, there was now a Jewish autonomous region, region called Birobidzhan. So what did they need Zion for? What do they need Zion for? What do they need Palestine for at this point? And that became a major issue of public debate in Poland at the time that Birobidzhan was founded. Do we still insist on Palestine because of the romantic vision? Or do we need a territory? And Birobidzhan can solve that. Look, the Soviet Union has provided it. And we always were uh, kind of on the Soviet side. We weren't into this British imperialism. We, we were always more Marxist. We're always here for the Jewish workers anyway. And believe it or not, this became a major public debate. And how did they define, especially within a party like the LPZ, like the Left Lezien, which had tens of thousands, if not more, members across Poland at the time. And eventually, what happened was, is that Birobidzian became the flop that it was. Not only did not a lot of Jews move there, but the Russian Soviet Jews did not buy into Yiddish culture. Russian Jewry in the interwar period, which is a whole story in itself, was assimilating, and they were embracing Russian as a language, Russian culture, they were leaving Judaism even as a tradition, even as a national identity, and therefore the LPZ and other Polish political parties moved closer to the Zionist movement, moved closer to the vision of Zionism in its mainstream form, and even rejoined officially the Zionist movement at some point, point. and therefore it's a, it, it was an interesting question that came up And it might be even relevant today. Very often people in the diaspora consider themselves Zionists, and they have no intention of ever moving to the state of Israel. Because Zionism has become a national identity. And it's something that gives a person, gives nationalism anywhere in the world, it's not limited to Jews, it gives a person a sense of national identity, gives themselves a connection to something, and they don't have to physically live in the territory where the nationalism exists as a government, but rather it's an issue of identity, even from afar, that this territory where the nationalism is, exists is something that I identify with and is something that is part and parcel of who I am. And that's definitely a major part of the Jewish story in, the, in modern times. So this was Yehudi Geber, with Jewish History Soundbites, a little bit about Biro Bidjan, and maybe a tour. We'll get there someday, but we have many, many other places around the Jewish world to get to first. So if you want to reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for tours, trips, and of course questions, comments, and sources, you can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoy